Over the radio, the SEALs reported Bin Laden was dead. The news of Bin Laden's death brought celebrations to the streets of the United States. But it also haunted the world with memories of a clear September morning a decade before, when the streets of America were choked by terror. That mystique and that legacy goes way, way back to even Vietnam and before, you know. The enemy knew the men in green faces, or if they were coming for you, you weren't coming back. Since World War II, SEALs and their forefathers have faced whatever threat the enemies of each generation have posed. From Hitler's beaches to Bin Laden's terror. While the perils have changed and will continue to, the invisible men behind the face masks still claim a common heritage and future. No matter how sophisticated they or their foes become, they are simply frogmen. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me today, former Navy SEAL Remy Adeleke. Right, Remy, what's up, brother? What's up, my man? What's up, my man? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, it's it been a while. We were trying to get something going. Um, yeah. So I'm glad to finally be able to talk to you. Yeah. It's been like two years we've been trying yeah. to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of walk through a bit of your career and, and yeah. um, what you were doing prior to joining the Navy. And, and uh, you know, and, and that's a big part of your story. And, and it's a part of who you are. Yeah, um, and and you also have a book coming out as well. Can we talk about that quickly? Yeah, my, yeah, my book is dropping um, May fourteenth. So if you listen to this now, my book dropped today. Um, uh, if it's May fourteenth, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it drops May fourteenth. It's uh, called Transform: uh, A Navy SEAL's Unlikely Journey from the Throne of Africa to the Streets of the Bronx to Defying All Odds. And um, it's a story of it's my journey, man. It's it's my it's, I talk a lot about my failures in life, and I'm sure we'll cover my story in the podcast. But it's a motivational book, man. It's, it's a book to inspire people to to reach for goals uh, and dreams that they think that they could never reach for. So I'm excited about it hitting the shelves. Yeah, and, and it's you know that kind of thing. I think it's it's good for people because because there's inspiration and motivation out there, you know. Yeah. But I think people need to sometimes hear that or see that because maybe there's a kid in the Bronx, you know, yeah. in a bad situation and he feels like he has no options kind of thing. No, and absolutely. Then, you know, and then they'll see your story and go, Hey, you know, maybe I can do something. Or maybe if it's not become a Navy SEAL, maybe it's just push yourself that hard. Exactly. And whatever and it that's, is. That's why I wrote the book. You know, I mean, I'm, I know you've, you've had other guys from the special forces community, uh, uh, on this podcast and it's, it's like a big, it's like a big taboo to be a SEAL especially, but to be in any branch of special operations and to write a book, like right. literally, like if you write a book and you a SEAL, like you could be ostracized. And, uh, for a long period of time, people were telling me, man, Remy, like, like your story is just crazy inspirational. And I know we're going to cover it here, but you know, like coming from Africa and the Bronx and this and that and being a SEAL, like 
you need you, you need to write a book. And I was like, nah, nah. And, and it wasn't until um, I went on Kathy Lee Gifford's show, the Today Show, like back in 2017, you know, I shared a little bit of my story. She was like, your book needs to be made and then you need your book needs to be turned into a movie. And and then I was like, nah. And she took me backstage afterwards and she was like, you need to do this. And I said, no. And she said, why not? I said, well, in our community, you know, you can be ostracized. And she said, well, I know your heart. Your heart is to write it for those kids who are like you. And I was like, absolutely. So she said, go write it. So the main reason was for what you just said, you know, is is to inspire that kid, man, in Marble Hill, you know, inspire that kid on Fordham or Sedgwick, you know, Compton, Gun Hill Road, wherever. Man, like I could be something great, you know. I could be a SEAL, I could be a doctor, I could be a lawyer. Like, I don't have to just be like a, a rapper or, or, you know, a drug dealer or, right. or athlete, you know, not knocking that, but just saying, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I think it's it's important because, you know, you, you and me are actually from the same part of New York. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, like, from where I grew up and where you grew up is probably 20 minutes apart, or if that. Yeah. Um, me myself, I, I was kind of a knucklehead growing up, so I, I, I understand what that life is like, and then I also understand that that's not what you should be doing, and then and yeah. there are better things and better options for you out there. And um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so what? So were you born in Africa and then came to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was born in Western Africa. Um, I lived in Nigeria. Uh, my dad, he was a he was a well known Nigerian engineer. As a matter of fact, he engineered one of the first man-made islands in the world that exists to this day, and it's called Banana Island. And because of my dad's success as an engineer, entrepreneur, philanthropist, we were rich. So, like, I was literally, I wasn't born, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you, you your story started out with, with you not having anything. I, I was born into a rich family. Like, we had nannies, we had drivers, we had cars, we traveled all over the world, we, ha- we didn't live in a house, we lived on a compound. I mean, we had it all. Uh, but but Nigeria is very, very corrupt and it's still corrupt to this day. And it was very corrupt at the time. And because of corruption, um, the Nigerian government, they essentially stripped our family of everything. Like my dad had invested millions and millions of dollars in, in the banana island, which was his, was his which was his most prized asset. And and the Nigerian government stripped it from him. And like literally like within days and I'm not even exaggerating within days of fighting the Nigerian government for the land back. Like he he, he died like mysteriously. And uh, so when he died, we went from rich, like having everything to poor, like literally like when I say poor, I mean, my mom didn't have like a nickel in her account. Like she had nothing. And so my mom, she she grew up in New York. Um, I tell people all the time, my mom's story is like the real coming to America story because <laughs> Eddie Murphy, because she met my dad. And she, my dad was, you know, <laughs> it's, the, it's literally a real story because I heard my dad met at the Metropolitan Museum. Wow. And he was like, yeah, I'm a Nigerian prince and you know, I, I'm, I'm rich and I'm missing that. And my mom was like, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, because she a New Yorker, so she was like, nah, whatever. But it ended up all being true. You know, my dad was a Nigerian chief. Which, you know, in, in English culture, we refer to royalty as king, queen, prince. But my dad was, he was a chief. And then our last name, Adeleke, Ade means crown and Leke means is above. So, so it was all reality. So, you know, after my mom and dad met, my mom moved in Africa. And she, she, was, she was kind of thrust into this world of royalty. So, um, wow. so after my dad died, my mom was just like, there's no way I'm raising these kids yeah, <laughs> in, in Africa. Africa yeah. I mean? So she she moved us back to the States 
permanently. And I grew up, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, man. That's where my, my journey in the Bronx started. So now, so how old were you when you came to the Bronx? I was five. I was five. Okay. So, yeah. so pretty much most of your memories are of the Bronx. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. It's just, you know, fire hydrants and running through, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Summertime. You know, going to the bodegas and, yeah. you know, still the 25 cent, you know, bag of chips and now, <laughs> now and later and five cent yeah. fishies and all that. And, you know, um, cracking, you know, we used to call it snapping, you know, snapping on your boys, you know what I mean? And, and just, I think the term now was roasting, like you roast somebody and like yeah. all that man playing two hand touch football. Like my whole, my whole, you know, my, all my memories my, from, from the Bronx growing up in the Bronx. Like I, I have limited memories from being in Africa. And that's why when I wrote the book, I had to do tons of research and interview my mom and, 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 you know, interview people who were close to my dad so that I could be as accurate as possible. But a lot of my main memories was from, you know, Fordham and Sedgwick, man, Fordham Road, man. <laughs> yeah, Fordham Road, man. That's um one of the most um, traffic-filled streets in New York, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're driving to stay off of Fordham. I know, man, especially in the summertime, man, because yeah. everybody out in the summertime, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so then, you know, you guys come come to the Bronx and, yeah. um, you know, now you're you're living in the Bronx and you're growing up. Um, yeah. So what what was that like for you? Once once you're, like, old enough to, you're out on your own in some case, in some ways and um, going to school, how, how was that a whole experience for you? It was, you know, it, it was... Man, I mean, growing up in New York, it was a lot. Um, now, as far as like the transition early on, I didn't really notice it too much because my mom, she did a great job at like at trying to show, trying to show my brother and I that our life was as normal as it could be. You know what I mean? Like my mom struggled a lot financially. Um, I remember there were times she would take us to the you know maintenance office in our building and ask for you know an extra extra few days to pay the rent. You know, there were times when. My mom didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to feed my brother and I. She was split it between us, you know. Um, so it was hard. Me and my brother shared clothes and, and sneakers and socks and you know, what I mean? yeah. it was you know that. So that so I remember all that. But uh, but yeah, I love growing up in the Bronx because I I gained so many lessons, you know, especially from you know from the streets, man. Just like how to trust people, when to trust people, um, you know, you know, you know how when to keep your mouth shut. You know what I'm saying? You can't. You can't just be bumping your gums everywhere because you're going to end up getting knocked out, man. I grew up, you know, I, I was jumped, you know, and I, I've seen people jump. I saw that. I grew up fighting, like a lot of fights. Um, DeVoe basketball court, I don't know. Like I got in fights on the DeVoe basketball court many a times and got jumped on DeVoe basketball court at times. So um, it was a crazy dynamic living in the Bronx and growing up there. But, you know, it really it really gave me lessons and tools that, that are still with me to this day. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, you know, I, and, the, and you can relate to this cause how old are you, how old are you now? Uh, 31. Yeah. So we about the same age. I'm 36, but, uh, you know, in the late eighties and the early nineties, like hip hop music and hip hop culture was like, it was the thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, it was, it was blown up. We had like Jay and Biggie and Nas and, you know, and, 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 you know, Outkast and Tupac and, and just Buster Rhymes and just all of these rappers and all of these artists. And, you know, I didn't have a father growing up, you know, because, you know, he died, obviously. And but I was always looking for a father to teach me how to be a man, right. you know, like 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 unconsciously, like con I would say consciously 20 um, percent, but unconsciously like 80 percent. Right. And so, you know, 
you know, I would listen to hip hop music and, and the culture and, you know, all that. And, and, and that's what kind of molded me. You know what I mean? So, you know, you know, I heard rappers talk about selling drugs. So that's why I want that's why, what I thought I needed to do, because, you know, they look like me and they came from the inner city like me. You know, I heard rappers talk about hooking up with multiple girls because that's the thing to do. And so that's what I, I did. I, you know, I heard talk about punching people in the face who disrespect. So that's what I did. You know what I mean? And so. So, you know, how I learned how to become a man was was through hip hop and hip hop culture, street culture, you know, being out in the streets. And and so, you know, uh, you know, I went through high school and in high school I was all my friends called me Sean John. Like that was my nickname in high school because that's when the Sean John gear came out. And, and I was hustling. I was making <laughs> I was making so much money hustling. I had like, man, I had so many scams in my time. I had like this, this sneaker scam, dude, where I was, you know, I worked I worked at athlete's foot. Right. I don't know. That, that was the name of the sneaker shop, Athlete Foot. And like, like I remember customers would come in and instead of like ringing them up at the register, I would, you know, I'd be like, yo, just give me the cash. And, you know, like, so if the sneakers were like $80, I'd be like, yo, just give me $50 cash. Yeah. And, then, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so I had this huge racket going. And in high school, I was a man, like, everybody came to me for sneakers. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I can get the Jordans, I can get everything, you know? Right. And, uh, and so, so I was like the hustle dude. So in high school, everybody called me Sean John because, because you know, when I got that money, I was buying up the Sean John clothes, man. I had the hats, you know, the bubble jacket, all that. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, as time passed, you know, that's when I really got into in, in selling drugs heavier, um, you know, and, 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 then, and then from there, I got to like high level, like high level scams where I was running illegal cell phone scams, bringing in thousands and thousands of dollars a week. And the reason why I was doing all that was because I was trying to get into the music game. You know, like I, w- I wanted to have my own record company. As a matter of fact, I, I started a record company. It's called A4 Entertainment. It was called A4 Entertainment at the time. Me and my boys and, you know, kind of got some artists from high school I grew up with and all that. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I was funneling all my money, my drug money, cell phone money into the record company. And, you know, we, we even put an album together. So we were doing pretty well. Um, but, you know, everything came crashing down like, like in uh, 2001, like, Three months after 9-11, I got involved in a deal with a drug dealer went bad. I saw him like a bunch of products, like this dude's Jamaican cattle for Gun Hill Road, actually, you know, and I, and I saw him like a bunch of bunch of product that was supposed to last for a certain amount of time and only lasted for a fraction of that time. And the mistake I made, you know, and this is something I learned as far as being in the Bronx about trusting people. Like I, I, I had kind of, I had given this dude trust instead of, you know, allowing him to earn his trust. And I remember like when I would meet with him, like he, he lived in the projects off of Gun Hill Road. He would never bring me, like he he would never bring me into his building. He would never even bring me to the project. So I didn't know where he lived. But every time he came to me to meet me, I would bring him in my apartment, you know, mm. which rookie move. Right. And so when 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 the, when things went south on 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 what I sold him, he came knocking on my mom's door. Mm. And uh and and like it was just a straight up threat, like, yo, if you don't have my money, like things ain't going too well for you. And I knew what that meant because I knew his reputation in the streets, you know, and I, right. and like he, he was going to kill me, you know what I mean? And, and, and so like I made him his money in like a day. And, uh, and then this was December, 2002, no 2001. And then after that, I was just like, I'm, I'm done with like this hustling game. Like I'm, I'm done doing this. Like I need to figure out a different path. And, uh, you know, for six months, I did nothing. Like, I literally did nothing for six months. And then in June of 2002, that's when I made the decision I was going to join the Navy. So when you um, when you joined the Navy, did you know that you wanted to be a SEAL or is that something you learned about um, as you joined? Nah, it was something, you know, it was 
back in, and I hate to backtrack, but you know, back in '95, the bad, this, uh, the movie Bad Boys came out, mm-hmm. and uh, when I watched that movie, that kind of inspired me, like to be something like a seal, but I didn't know what, right? <laughs> and and the reason why was because that was the first time I saw two like two like black dudes who were heroes, but they still had swagger. They were still cool. You know what I mean? Like they weren't like uptight. Like I hated the, I mean, you could relate to, I hated the NYPD growing up. Right. Yeah. So anything cop related, I hate it. But when I saw them, I was like, man, like I could be something like that and be cool. Right. And then they, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. You know, and they funny and, and, and they still got swagger. And then a year later, the rock came out. I don't know if you remember that movie and um, um, it's the rock. With uh, uh, Nicolas Cage and, and uh, Sean Connery. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I saw Navy SEALs. Because it was right. Navy SEALs in that movie. You know, they were underwater. And, and they were and they were real SEALs. So Michael Bay, he used real SEALs in oh, that. Oh, did he? I hope so, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, that's how I later got into the film and TV industry. Because, and that's later in the story. But, you know, um, because Michael Bay was looking for an African-American SEAL. And so, oh, and you, right, you worked with him. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's how I got cast in Transformers. So, you know, flashback to, to, to when The Rock came out, when I saw that movie and I saw them dudes in the water with the scuba gear coming out with the suppressed guns and the black suits, I was yeah. like, yo. <laughs> I was like, I want to do that. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a SEAL. But, you know, I, was, I think I was like 15 at the time. And, you know, so it was like it was in a reality. It was just kind of like me saying right now I want to be president. And so, so you know, you know, I kind of put that dream deep down inside of me. But when I finally went to the Navy recruiter's office that day, you know, flash forward. Um, that's when I was like, I'm joining to be a SEAL. Like, mm. like I'm not joining the Navy to be a deck seaman. I'm not joining the Navy to be anything else but a SEAL. And um, but there were a few there were a few issues. You know, I didn't qualify to be a SEAL in any way. I, so I couldn't get a SEAL contract. One, I didn't have the ASVAB scores. You got to score really, really high on the ASVAB to even get a chance to go to Buds. Um, two, um, I was super skinny. You know what I mean? Um, and three, I couldn't swim, you know, to be a seal, you know, I'm growing up in the Bronx. There wasn't a lot of like pools to, be, you know, go swimming. So I, so I didn't, I didn't have what it takes from a swim person. And then the big thing too, the recruiter, she was from the Bronx. And after she ran my background check, cause they got to do a quick background in order to see if you qualify for the Navy. She found out that I had two warrants out for my arrest. Mm. I had a warrant in New Jersey and I had a warrant in New York. And so, um, like when she told me that I got up and I got ready to leave. And she was like, where are you going? I was like, I'm leaving because I can't join. She was like, you got a suit. And I was like, nah, I don't have a suit. She was like, do you have like a collar shirt and slacks? And I was like, yeah. She said, come back, you know, next week or whatever. She said, you know, come back next week. And, and so I came back the following week and she literally, she took me to both judges. She took me to, the, she drove me like in a government vehicle. She was in her dress uniform. And she took me to a judge in Jersey. Wow. She took me to a judge in New York. And like, she stood in front of them. And she like advocated on my behalf. She was like, listen, 9-11 just took place a few months earlier. This guy, yes, he's made mistakes and did some things he wasn't supposed to do, but he's trying to turn his life around by joining the Navy. But I can't let him in the Navy with, with a record. Like, can you expunge his record? And both judges like unanimously said, wow. yeah, we'll expunge your, his record. And then, but even with my record expunged, I still wasn't allowed to join the Navy. Because when you go to MEPS, they ask you all these questions like, have you ever been arrested? Have you ever like done this? Have you ever done that? Have you ever had your record sealed or expunged? And if you answer yes to any of those questions, that pretty much disqualifies you. And, and even if it's a expunge or seal, because the reason why they ask that question is because they need to know what you did. 
And if your record is expunged or sealed, they don't know what you did. And so you could have raped somebody. And so mm. to them, because we don't know whether you raped someone, we don't want to bring you into a name into the Navy for you to rape somebody. So because it's, it's sealed or you can't come in. And so like, but she had fudged all my paperwork. She had got my record cleared so fast. And when we went to MEPS, like nothing showed up in the system. And literally like that's, that was the, and yo, I, t- I, I, I remember when I wrote that story in my book, I was like, man, this woman had to be an angel. Like, yeah. like, she, hey, dude, she died four years after she did that for me, dude. Wow. You know, and she, and, and the only, and, and, and the crazy thing about it is I didn't find out until last year because, you know, and I'm kind of jumping around, but you know, when you're in the Navy and you meet all these people, you forget their names and time passes. And, and, you know, I tried to reach out to her after I got in, after years after I got in, but I had lost contact with her. And then, like, I had totally forgot her name. So, you know, after I finished writing the book, I went to go look in my military records to find something. And I found her name and I Googled her name and I, and I found this memorial page. And I oh, found wow. out that, and that she had died like in 2006 of, of like this. She, she was 30 years old. She had died of like this super rare autoimmune disease. Um, but I, I ended up meeting up with her brother, you know, um, and her family. As a matter of fact, her brother be a good dude for you to interview because he was in he was in the Air Force. Um, and he's, he's like a poet now, but man, that dude told me that that's what she would do. He was like, man, she would drive around the Bronx and she would look for cats who were drug dealers, dudes who were getting in trouble. And she would be like, listen, I know where your path is going. I know where your life is going. Come with me so I can help change your life. And she, and she would get put, sneak people into the Navy, man. And so like, it was a blessing that I met her that day because any other recruiter, if they would have ran my record, I'd have been blacklisted because what would have happened was they would have put, they would have sort of warrants. They probably would have turned me in. But then on top of that, they would have put me in a database of a person with a record and I'd have never been able to join the military. So, you know, wow, yeah, that's how I got in. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah, she did a good job, man. She did a good job. That definitely, um, changed, changed the direction that your life was moving in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would probably be dead or in prison if it wasn't for me. <laughs> like, that's for incredible. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, <clears throat> we were talking about it a little bit before, um, before we got on, but some of the, you know, a lot of the things that you learn in the streets, aside from the actual criminal part of it, yeah, yeah. It, it, those are like life lessons that some people never learn in their life, you know, as far yeah. as, um, situational awareness, yeah. um, being, you know, being able to, to look someone in the eye and see what they're about, you know, those kind of things. And, um, you know, and, and like we discussed before, and you said a lot of those things really helped you in your career as a SEAL. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, hundred percent, man, you know, and I kind of, before I even get to the SEAL part, cause I know we're going to get there and I can go into, I'm going to go into even greater detail, but just going to boot camp, man, like going to boot camp, man, like when it, when it was harder for, for, for like other kids, for me, it was easy. You know, for me, it was like, yeah, I grew up in the Bronx. <laughs> you know what I mean, like this ain't hard for me. And then, right. you know, go from there, I go to my first command. Um, and when I got to my first command, um, that's, which was Naval hospital camp Pendleton. That's when I really put the pedal to the metal to like train. Like I had to, again, I had to study my ASVAP, you know, I had to get my ASVAP scores on high. I had, you know, I had to learn how to swim. I had to learn how to, you know, I had to learn how to work out to put on strength. And, uh, and, and, and what got me through all that was my upbringing, you know, because, you know, as I saying, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, and that, and that, and that kind of mentality stuck with me. Where, you know, every day, like, I was in pain, it was cold, 
you know, I didn't feel like training, but I just knew like I'm from New York, I'm from the Bronx, like I need to represent and I need to make it. And so I didn't have a car, so I would run three miles to the pool, jump in the water in the shallow end, and then try to figure out, try to teach myself how to swim. And I would run three miles back home, you know, and, and, and I just had all my, all, all my focus was on working at the hospital and training. And within a year of checking into Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, I, had, I was checking out. I checked out in a year and went to SEAL training, you know what I mean, which is, that's another thing that's unheard of. Because usually, like, if you, if, when you go to your first command, you, you have to wait at least 18 months before you can even start the process to apply to go to SEAL training. And I, and I was already in SEAL training a year after getting to my first command. Um, so, I, you know, I got the buds and, you know, I made, you know, made it through first phase, made it through hell week. Uh, and then I got the second phase. And when I got the second phase, and there's more to the story, I won't kind of bore you with it. I ended up getting kicked out, um, and, and it was partly because you know my pride. You know, I, after I made it through Hell Week, in my mind, you know, I was like that Kanye West song. It's like you can't tell me nothing, you know, because <laughs> it's like I made it from Africa, I made it through the Bronx, I'm I'm almost done with SEAL. I made it through the hardest part of SEAL training. I'm about to be a SEAL. Yo, nobody can't tell me nothing. And so, you know, that, that's how I felt, you know. And so, so, so instead of like working on what I needed to work on on the weekends, I was at the clubs, man. I was at the clubs, hooking up with girls, man. I remember being at the clubs and, and, and girls would be like, so what do you do? And I was like, I'm a Navy SEAL, man. And I was at Buds, man. You know what I'm saying? Like lying to girls just to hook up with them. And, uh, you know, and, and I was just reckless, man. And so anyway, that, that ended up like really coming back on me because, you know, I ended up like failing some tests in, in, in second phase, die phase. And I went to an academic review board and they were like, you know, remember, you, 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 we see you got what it takes, you know, to, to, to be a SEAL because you made it through hell week and, and you're almost there. But, you know, you, you failed some of these these, these uh, your, your swims and you failed like, you know, your, your dive test. So we got to kick you out. So so they kicked me out of SEAL training. And uh, when they kicked me out of SEAL training, I had to go. I, I went back to Camp Pendleton. But this time I was I was stationed. Uh, I was stationed in the infantry as a Navy corpsman because I was a corpsman. And I tell you something, man. It was it was a huge humbling. It was it was a humbling that I needed. I needed really bad. And 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 and, and the day after I got kicked out of SEAL training, man, like literally, like I was I was in a pool, man. I was like working on everything that I needed to work on to get back. I didn't know if I was gonna be able to get back because you know at that time, like with infantry, a lot of infantry cats were getting killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, or if not killed, they were getting like permanently injured. Like it was this one dude I was in buzz with. Um, he he had got performance drop as well. And, and he went to first Marine division and he was in a, he, he, he is, and it's a crazy story. Cause I was supposed to be where he was, but I had gotten there a little bit later and he, he, he was in a convoy in Iraq and in an IED. Wow. Everybody, everybody, everybody in his vehicle died except for him. But he was, he was permanently like crippled, like permanent brain damage, everything. It was just all. And I remember seeing that dude in the hospital and, you know, like a year later and, you know, he's all messed up, man. Like scars all over. Like he, he barely hold a conversation. Like he, from what I remember, he could have talked. But anyway, it was there was no guarantee I was gonna be able to get back to SEAL training. But you know, I didn't let that kind of keep me from doing what I needed to do. So like every day I was training, doing what I needed to do to get back. And and two years later I went back. And after I went back, I made it through. Made it through SEAL training. And that's when when the real fun began. Began. You know, where I was able to actually like put all that training and all the lessons I learned throughout my career and throughout my life you know, uh, in a practice as an operator. What, um, what team did you go to? So I was on SEAL team three. That was my first team. Um, great team. I was, I was in the Punisher platoon. 
um, Delta Platoon. <laughs> um, it was great, man. It was great, man. I, I got a chance to, you know, do some awesome things, man, in my career, man. And, uh, you know, direct action, kicking down doors, sneaking into dudes' houses. As a matter of fact, I love that because I, as a kid, I always hated bullies, especially like growing up in the Bronx, you know, you know, and being bullied and being jumped and all that. So, so, you know, those dudes, you know, and, I, and I'm just being real generic just for the sake of confidentiality. But, you know, some of the, a lot of the dudes that I went, on, went after, they were just big bullies. So, so what I loved about my job was, you know, being able to, you know, be that dude that's like knocking on their door, you know, you know, proverbial, proverbially and literally, and, you know, snatching them up, you know, doing what needs to be done, you know, to, to, to make sure that they don't hurt people anymore. Um, so, you know, I got a chance to do DAs, reconnaissance missions, like, you know, intel, like all kinds of stuff. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, we talked about behind this conversation before we jumped on, you know, my, my specialty was intelligence collection and uh, in the military, that's <clears throat> that's called human. So human starts stands for human intelligence. And uh, in order to get into the human intelligence program, you got to go through like you got to go through it through a, like a, a, a real hard mental test. And I can't really go into detail about it, but it's, I'll just call it like a, a mental test uh, where you got to just do a lot of crazy things in a room. Like it's nothing physically it's in a room and you're getting graded by by these three other uh, human operators. And uh, I passed it. I passed the entry exam to get into the program. And then from there, I went to school. I had to go to a, a specific human school. I can't talk about the name of it. And um, and after I graduated from that school, that gave me the, the qualification to to essentially be an intelligence collector. So to to, to run, you know, uh, and I'm gonna just say informants, just for the sake of you know keeping it clean. But um, you know, run informants um, um, and 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 just uh, collect information that was going to lead to direct action missions. So I would meet with people. I would carry tons of money on me. And 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 you know, and and, and being grown up in the Bronx. You know, it was easy for me identifying when people were, you know, playing me, trying to play me, uh, trying to just get money from me. People were, when people were telling the truth or when people were double agent working for for a terrorist organization. So so all of the things that I had learned in the streets, like it prepared me. And I didn't even know that it was preparing me all those years. But that prepared me to do that job, you know, and and, and we were going to do a lot of cool operations, you know, um, based off of intel that I collected and do some other stuff. So. So, yeah, I had a great career in the teams, man. Yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, they call it like street smarts, uh, that kind of thing. A lot of that, like anyone, like if you look at history and you look at the history of, um, you know, the intelligence agencies and I mean, going going way back, like to, you know, World War One, World War Two. Um, a lot of the things that were required, obviously, they want smart people to, to do these kind of things, but you, you need to have the ability to interact with people to um to gain people's trust you know to exactly. all these kind of things these human yeah. interactions you need to be good at yeah. and um people are the same all over the world maybe the circumstances may be different yeah uh, but everyone's the same i mean like anywhere i've been in the world you know i i connect with people and we le- you know you learn things about the cultures and whatnot and um d- just having that street smarts yeah. I feel like helps me move through certain places that people absolutely. just can't do it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the cool thing, too, was like I, I would recognize when when cats who did do my job but didn't come from where I came from, like like I would I would be able to observe as they as, as they did the job and and an informant wasn't responding. You know what I mean? And so and I, and I kind of throw out this example. So one thing that I had learned, like 
in one one particular country I was in, I had learned that the people loved like black comedians, <laughs> like like literally, like they love black comedians, like Martin Lawrence, Eddie Murphy, like all of these cats, like like Bernie Mac, like they like and they knew all about them. They could tell you they they could they couldn't speak a lick of English, but through an interpreter, they could tell you everything about these cats, right? <laughs> and their movies. And so like like when I recognize that, you know, from a street you know from a street perspective, when you see when you see leverage or you see a common ground, like you learn from the streets how to how to use that, how to leverage that or manip- not manipulate that, but how to use that for your benefit. And so I would act like Martin Lawrence when I would go into meet- meetings with this cat, with <laughs> these cats, like literally. And, 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 and the dudes who, who did my job, you know, you know, majority of white dudes, they would look at me like I was stupid because they didn't get it. But I would walk up, walk into the meetings. I'd be like, yo, what's up? What's up? What's up, man? Like, yo, what's up, nigga? What's up with your clothes, man? What's going on? And they couldn't understand what I was saying because they weren't Americans. They couldn't understand verbally. I was talking to it, but they would just be laughing. Right, because they recognized the body language. Because, right, right. Exactly. They recognized the body language. They, they, they recognized the high pitch, everything. You know what I mean? And they would just start laughing. They would go to the interpreter they, and, and they would say, they'd be like, man, this guy's funny. This guy's funny. And then I would continue on and be like, man, I like this guy. I like this guy. And I could, and then, and then I, I, I want to ask them for any information. I would just like, I would just continue to be like, you know, joke around, but at the same time, be serious. You no, know, like, learn when to pull back. You know, not be extra and do 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 too much. And then, you know, by like halfway through the meeting, they would be like, yo, so so and so, you know, terrorist, bougie, whatever, like. You need me to tell you where he's at or where he's gonna be, or you want me to tell you what happened the other day, this and that. And, I, and there were times where I'd be like, nah, nah, I'm just trying to kick it with you. Like, <laughs> you know, I would, I'd be like, I just want to kick it with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can talk about that later. And then, like, and the reason why I didn't want to, like, because I didn't want them to think that I was, I just had him there for just that reason. And then as time passed, eventually I'd be like, yo, I'll take you up on that offer. And, and, and that's how I collected mad information. Like I collected so much information just doing that. And again, I learned all of that from from the streets, observing your target. And I'm going to use that that term really loosely, like observing your target or even if it's a chick, right? You see a girl and you're like, man, she's fine. Like a smart dude is not going to, and you know, I learned this in the streets. A smart dude is not going to just beeline to her and just start spitting game. Right. Never works. Most, yeah, most dudes that do that, they get turned down real yeah, quick. Yeah. Especially in New York. Especially in New York, girl. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got to be a pro, man. Yeah, a New York girl's going to embarrass you. Yeah. She's going to embarrass you in front of everybody, right? But the smart cats, you sit back and you observe. And you're like, okay, okay. You see how she moves. You see, you know, what she likes. Like, you sit back and you take notes. And then when the time is right, then you, you slide in. And, yeah. and, and say what needs to be said the way it needs to be said. And, and and I learned that from growing up in New York, and that's how I applied it to what I did in my job. And you know, that's how I, you know I had a, I had a great career doing doing what I did, man. I was in teams for seven years, man. So it was great, man. And and how long were you in? Also, oh, you were in the team you said for seven years, the teams. Yep, seven years. Six six years was was it was really like it was eight years, but I, I just I just say seven because you know seven and a half. You know, sometimes when you say. You say seven and a half, people are like, oh, you'd be extra. But you say eight, then that's not honest. So I always go down to seven just to keep uh, it yeah. coach. <laughs> you know I mean? But uh, but, but, yeah, it, but it that's like the, the 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 street smarts again coming in. You know, you're playing a uh, um, exactly. So yeah. cats because cats will pull you or pull your card. 
you know, you say eight years, they're gonna be like, oh nah, you wasn't eight years. You say seven and a half, uh, you're being extra. Seven, you say, you know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, I did seven years, you know, and overall 13, uh, uh, 13 years. And I had a, man, I had an awesome career, man. I traveled all, most of, you know, three deployments to the Middle East, you know what I mean? Um, different parts, you know, uh, uh, you know, doing a lot of cool stuff. There were times that I would pinch myself and just be like, man, how did I get here? You know, because I worked with three letter agencies. And that, that, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing, you know, that, that, you know, I can't really go into great detail, but I work with, I work with the, I, I've done work with the CIA. I've done work with, with, with DIA. I've done work with, you know, other three letter agencies. And there were times when I was like, man, like I'm a cat, I'm a kid from the Bronx, man. You know what I mean? And, and, and a majority of the rooms that I was in, I was the only, I was the only minority. Right. You know, I, I was the only minority. I'm in these high level rooms. So it was. It was awesome, man, and that's why I tell young cats all the time. And I, I work with a, um, I do a lot of nonprofit inner city work here, here, here in California, okay. you know, because you know my thing is, you know, I, I was blessed by my my recruiter and other people in my life who came into my life to to help me get to where I'm at, and, and so I was just like, man, I need to get back. So I got kids, man, like young inner city kids in, in, in the hoods of of different parts of Southern California, and 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 they're my projects. And and one thing I you know I try to encourage them to do is like military man like like join the military if you don't know what you're gonna do let's go in the middle let's go to let's at least go to a recruiter and talk about it you know and 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 if there's interest in middle let, let, let's talk about you know special forces or or, or going to the academy and becoming an officer or or, or, or going to uh, going through ocs and, and becoming a medical officer so it's something that i really tried to encourage you know the kids that i mentor in uh with city of hope city of hope LA, it's called the mesa city of hope that's uh that's a nonprofit that i work with oh nice that's awesome um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, a friend of mine, he was a, um, a squadron commander at Delta Force. Yeah. And, um, and now he's uh, part of an organization called the Green Beret Project. And, okay. and they basically target inner city youth, minority kids, you know, so, That's um, what's up. yeah, That's what's... yeah. So it's, it's, and they, you know, they work like in, in different States, um, and they use kind of that special forces method, you know, uh, from the ground up and, yeah. you know, the unconventional thing. And um, I, I don't know if you were aware, I think I think it was last summer, uh, there was a kid who was killed in the Bronx, a Dominican kid. Do you remember that? He was stabbed to death. Was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was a big, because his, his funeral was on TV. Yeah, yeah. I watched it from here. I watched part of it. Yeah, that was sad, because they were trying to kill somebody else. Mm-hmm. But, but it was like a mistaken identity type deal, right? Yeah, yeah, and... And the whole thing was caught because they stabbed him right outside of a bodega and there were cameras. So the whole thing was on camera and that's what really made it, um, you know, gruesome and, and upsetting for people. And he was like a nice young kid and, um, you know, he wasn't involved in any kind of street thing, but he was just wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's it, it's really looking at the whole situation as far as inner city minority kids. Um, you know, the rapper Nipsey Hussle was killed recently. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I knew his name. I, I probably heard a, a song or two, but I didn't know too much about him. But after he died, yeah. I kind of looked at him a little bit. And um, yeah. it seems like he had done a lot for his community and, and was kind of turning it around. You know, he was a gang member, but yeah. he was trying to steer kids away from that and do some some important things. But he, he said something in an interview that really kind of um, I thought would be good for kids in that situation yeah. to hear and he was talking about how 
you know, you have uh, you have beef with somebody from another gang and, you know, they shot up your neighborhood. So you're going to their neighborhood and you're going to shoot up their neighborhood in retaliation. He's like, but then you, you when you're driving there, you're driving past, uh, you know, a white guy, a Latino guy or yeah. Asian. Yeah. You're ignoring them. You're driving past a black guy who's dressed nicely and looks like he's educated and he's doing something good with himself. And you're looking for the guy who looks exactly like you. Exactly. That's, that's real right there. He's dressed like you. He talks like you. He walks like you. And and you're going to kill that guy. Yeah. And, um, and I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, that's heavy. Because it's like you're killing yourself. Yeah. And that's exactly what's yourself. happening. That's exactly what's happening. And um, in a lot of these neighborhoods, the kids just don't see any other option, you know? I know, and it's, and and again, it's going back to the reason why I wrote my book, and the reason why I'm, I, I'm like like I'm, uh, I'm like making myself more public because man, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to kind of to kind of you know change the trend. You know what I mean? Because who else are they? They're getting a lot of this from from the people they look up to, and most of the people they look up to, as you know, are the rappers. Yeah. And ninety nine percent of the rappers ain't living what they rapping. Right. So when you look at it, everything is a cycle of it's a cycle of, of falsehoods. You know, I watch this dude who talks about killing people or, 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 or shooting people or selling drugs. And he's not doing it because if he was doing it, he would be sitting in a box somewhere. But because I'm watching him do it now, I'm going to do it. And now I do it and I end up where he would end up if he was really doing it. You know what I mean? Right. And so it, it, it really is sad, man. The whole Nipsey Hustle thing really messed me up because like you, I didn't know much about him, you know, because, you know, I, I don't listen to uh, in the past like, I'm going to say like nine years. I haven't, you know, 10 years. I haven't listened to hardcore rap. You know, I, I kind of, you know, as I got older, I kind of like, you know, it was like, you know, I don't want to put that in my in my mind and my spirit. Right. Um, so I didn't know much about Nipsey Hustle, um, But man, when I heard his story, man, and the fact that the fact that he was given back, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like he was actually like in the hood providing jobs, like right. providing programs, giving back. Right. And this dude kills him for for what? Because he said leave. Right. Man, that was crazy, man. Yeah. And, but, but it happens every day, though. That's the that's the that's the thing that that's it was it. His situation was just public knowledge because of who he was. Right. How many times every day in hoods around the country does that happen? Right. Every day. Every, every day. day. Yeah. All day. You know, so it's crazy, man. I think about um, Khalif Browder, man. You know, oh, that, was, know that was crazy. Yeah. Was. You know what I mean? Like, dude grew up right, right down the street from me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, man, like, Think about his his, that, his situation with the police and getting caught up in the justice system. Right, and and he was in like solitary confinement. And he didn't do anything. He was like in there falsely in prison. Is that is that him? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In prison. He was He was in solitary confinement for like, and I don't quote me on this, but it was like for like three hundred days, something ridiculous. Yeah, something yeah. hard. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at the science behind solitary confinement, like. I think like a human being is not supposed to be in like solitary confinement for like more than like two or three days because it messes with you psychologically. Right. And unless you're like part of this small spectrum of human beings who are like, you know, on something else. Uh, but the majority of people would just get 
destroyed by that kind of thing. Absolutely. Exactly. And and that's why they do it. It's yeah. it's meant to destroy you, you know, break you or whatever. Yeah. And he was a kid when he was in there. Right. So, so yeah, I, mean, I think breaks men. Yeah. And, and all for, for, for a book bag, man. You know what I mean? Like, and, you know, going back, I, I hate that I keep going back to my book, but I talk about all of these things in my book, man. Um, like I talk about the justice system, you know, like, uh, you know, because... It's not a fair justice system. You know, when you look at my situation, if it wasn't for Tiana, I would probably still be caught up in the justice system because the government said you are not qualified to take this job because of the mistakes you made before. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, and now if she didn't do what she did, who knows where I would be? I would probably just be in that cycle. Right. But because she did what she did, she broke that cycle. So, you know, I talk about that. You know, I talk about the importance of second chances. You know what I mean? There are a lot of kids who make mistakes and they just need a second chance. You know, I talk about the education system in inner cities, man. And a lot of the education systems, a lot of the schools, you know this as well as I do, they're not set up to prepare young kids to go off and be success, go to college. And go and they and they have a crit. They literally a lot of these schools are just preparing them to go into the justice system. Yep, I mean you, I, it's yeah. it's it's crazy. I mean, uh, especially in the Bronx during the especially you know the during Bronx. those days, um, schools were just like the high schools were just like places where you know kid that was like the pre street life, and then exactly. you know you you went to school. It was just kind of a social thing. It wasn't even about school. It was about hanging out or whatever yeah. you know and. Um, the teachers in the care. Yep. Teachers would just sit there. Do my mom, my brother, dude. I tell you this story. Sorry for going off on tangent. My brother, he's like, dude was a genius. Like he was a total opposite of me. Like I was out in the streets, but he had like a he had like a uh, he had like a, one of them you know change of heart and coming to you know coming to Jesus moments um, when he was like thirteen. Um, you know he was he felt like he felt like a class like or two classes or something like that. And when he came home, you know, he, he had came home on a day where my mom was just broken, you know, because she was struggling and, and, and she didn't know how she was going to make it. And she was just it was just a bad day for her. And when he showed my mom the report card, she just broke down crying. She was like, it wasn't even like I'm a spank. It was just like she was just like crying because she was like, I don't know how, how I'm going to make it. And you failed this class. What am I going to do? Like, bio, I need you to do well. And she, like, she was bawling. And that, in that moment, like, my brother, like, something switched when turning his brain. And he was like, I'm going to be a genius. <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> and literally, he became a genius, dude. So while I was out, you know, running around, he was in the library. Like, he was, like, he would just go to the library just to read, like, on it. I'm talking, like, 13, 14, 15, 16. You know, like growing, our friends would call us Pinky in the Brain. You know, from that. <laughs> and I'm serious because they used to call me Pinky and call him the Brain because my brother was brilliant, like so smart that when he was at Kennedy, he graduated. He 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 graduated like in 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 three years. Oh, so wow. he finished everything that he needed to finish to graduate in three years. And that fourth year, like he he just took all AP classes. He was like, I'm not going to go to college. Just yet, I'm gonna just do all AP classes so I can get these credits for free, right? Tell me why and go to go into the justice system. And on top of that, my brother got a full ride scholarship to study engineering at Syracuse University. Well, in his last semester, 
or like like no, actually his last semester of his junior year when he was done with all the classes he needed to finish, the counselor brought him in and 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 the counselor was like, What do you want to do? Bio bio was like, I wanna to go to I wanna to go to college. Like I wanna to go to college, that's that's my goal. And he was like, I don't think you should go to college. He's like, I think you should go to a trade school. You should go to a trade school because a trade school is gonna be better for you. Like you, you probably won't make it in college. Mm. So what he says to my brother, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, and for a counselor in a high school to say that to a kid who you're supposed to be like, no, go to college. Like you got, you're brilliant. You straight A's 4.0. Next year is all, it's going to be all, you know, eight AP classes. To, like, come on, that just shows you how jacked up the system is. And we could argue, oh, well, that's just one teacher. But how many other kids did that one teacher say that to? And how many other teachers or counselors allowed that to be said and not say anything? You know what I'm saying? And my mom, my, my mom said something. My mom went to the school and flipped out on the counselor. It was just like, how dare you do that to my son? How dare you try to derail his, his future? And my brother ended up going to college, graduated college in three years, and he got his master's in one year. And dude's making like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year now as a, as a computer science engineer from the Bronx. You wow. know? So... Yeah, it, it, it's funny too because um, so I follow I followed this cop. Uh, he was a, a cop in LA, and he worked in South Central. And he like just on Instagram, and he would post stuff. You know, I was like it here and there, whatever. Yeah. And um, and then he had this post showing Nipsey Hussle in front of a police car with his middle finger pointing towards the um, like the center of the door has I guess like the the um. The, uh, you know LAPD's uh, logo and sign and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, and he basically had this kind of long-winded post, and he was saying something to the effect of, uh, you know, don't make this guy like a martyr. You know, he was a, uh, you know, part of a, a really bad street gang in Los Angeles, and yeah, and responsible for all these bad things happening. And then at the end, he puts, yeah, but you know, he did do some good things for the community, so I'll give him that. But. I thought just the the flavor of it was kind of ugly, especially yeah. being someone who works in that community. Um, as he, he he said, like more specifically where he worked, I'm not going to repeat it. But um, mm. and then I commented, like I just don't think this is like a cool thing to post, especially given that he was just murdered. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Know, you know, what if his family sees it? What if his wife? Exactly. Sees it? You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's just tasteless. Yeah, and then so then a bunch of people commented. And like two or three dudes are like, yo, I listen to your podcast. I love your podcast. But like, and I thought you were smart, you know, things like that. You know, and I can't yeah. believe your readiness. And I'm just like, you know, I don't understand. And especially some of the, and one of the guys, he was like somewhere from the South and he had like yeah. all this Jesus Christ stuff all over his profile. It's like, you know, yeah. you know, what do you know about the Last Supper? You know, Jesus Christ, he ate with prostitutes and thieves exactly. and murder. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. So, exactly. And then just, like I said, I'm not like a huge Nipsey Hussle fan or anything like that, but just looking at, you know, after he was killed, just kind of looking to his life, uh, you know, he invested uh, for for STEM programs, you know, math, science, technology, you know, put his own money. He didn't have to do that. Most guys who who make it out of South Central, they move, you know, somewhere in L.A., get a nice house and and get away from there. But he, he, he didn't have to do that, but he did. So to me, just to... To focus on the early years, like, yes, if someone did bad things and, you know, maybe they should go to prison for it, I mean, like, you know, depending on what they did, 
right? You know, I don't want killers in the street yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. But Absolutely. Um, I think when someone is trying to turn it around and they are turning it around, they're having a positive effect, we shouldn't just try and drag them down, you know, that... I agree. B- before, no, I agree 100%. Right. The, the, he was, the, day bef- the day after he was killed, he was set to meet with the... the uh, the police, chief of police. Yeah, yeah. talk about how to how to reduce uh, gang violence. Right, how like can that. we scale it down? Right, and so that showed that he he was reaching towards the LAPD and saying, "Hey, I want to work with you and figure this thing out." And um, I think it was the chief of police. I think he he said it at the press conference or something like that, or he tweeted it. And he what he said was, "When I heard that it was Nipsey Hussle, I thought, oh my God, like." Like he was one of the good guys or he, you know, he was yeah. making a difference. Yeah. And, and I think when you look at some of these communities, the best way to, to fix them. And, and this is kind of, um, I did a podcast with the guy I told you about before. He was a, a squadron commander at Delta. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we talked about the way that you fix it. It's like the police aren't going to fix the problem no. in South Central no. or in some of these areas. It, it's that same kind of unconventional warfare mindset yeah. from the ground up that fixes it. Absolutely. So, you know, when you're, for example, you know, you're overseas and you're working and, you know, you're in a certain area, it's a bad area, and you need to get into that area, you're going to go to the guy who's been around, maybe he, you know, he's... The influence. You're going to go to the shake. You're going to go to a shake. You're going to go to a tribal leader. Exactly. You know what I mean? You're going to empower them. You know what I'm saying? And and, and you're not going to do the work for them. Exactly. You know? And that's how the, the change comes. You have to influence and the change has to come organically. Exactly. When I look at Nipsey Hussle, what he was, uh, what he was and what he was kind of transforming into, that was the organic change. Absolutely. So as Americans, as human beings, we should want more Nipsey Hussles. I agree. Because that's where the change is, or or yourself, you know what I'm saying? Like you, yeah. you came from, you know, we come from the same area in New York, so like, yeah. you know, we understand these things, and it's like yeah. that's where the change happens organically. And because most people, they only connect with people they could relate to. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So so Nipsey had influence over all of these people from his area. Why? Because all of these people from this area could relate to him. Right. You know, it was like they were on the same level. They came from the same world. You know, and that's why I truly feel like it's important for me and Nipsey and other people who come from these these worlds to go back. Because, like, I was sitting with three kids, what's today, Tuesday, um, at this elementary school. They All three of them in sixth grade. They the three baddest kids in the school. Like the three, I mean, the teachers can't control them. They get suspended. I mean, they do stuff. I mean, like the principal don't know what to do with them. You know what I mean? They can't sit down for like three minutes without like running wild. I sat down with them for like 45 minutes. Why was that? Because I was able to look them in the eye and say, listen, I come from where you come from. And not just look them in the eye and say something, but they could feel that we, this guy's, this guy knows me. I'm him. And it's that relatable factor. And so we need people, like you said, most cops, the police don't police in the areas they come from. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. most, most politicians, pretty much all politicians that, that lead 
a, a district or let's just kind of keep district out, but let's just say a, a state, you know, con- congressional politicians, they don't live in the worst or the poorest district in their state. You know what I'm saying? So it's just one of those things where because you can't relate and I can't relate to you one because you can't relate to me. You're not going to know how or where I need the best help. Right. What What's making me tick? And, and exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's and and it's interesting because, uh, you know, I keep referring back to this 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 guy who was the uh, he was a, a commander at the unit. And um, one of the things we were talking about off the podcast was. You know they're going into inner cities mainly, yeah. and and he was thinking about maybe trying to set up in New York. And I'm like, look, if you want to set up in New York, I could probably help you because I could go into the South Bronx, yeah, and I could go into these schools. You know what I mean? I can help you. Get and I'm gonna come up. with you. And I'm gonna come with you. Yeah. And so he's like, and then, but it's it's just so funny, or not funny, but it's interesting. Like he he's totally uh, aware of that, and he's saying like, yeah, like. Uh, you know, this was actually right around the time that this, the uh, this, the murder happened in the, in the Bronx yeah. with that kid. And um, yeah. he was saying, like, look, he's like, I could go I could go to the Bronx. Like, physically, I can go there. But he's like, they're not going to connect to a bunch of white boys, uh, you know, who were in special special forces. Yeah. He's like, so we need that organic, you know, organic to that area. And and we need to be able to set up that way. And and that's just, I feel like the people who were only focusing on like the negative for Nipsey, mm-hmm. I feel like they're not thinking on that level. And actually, a good friend of mine, he's Mexican American. He might be from South Central or from Texas. I, I forget. I, I podcasted with him before, but he was yeah. uh, he was a Green Beret for twenty years. You know eight, nine, ten deployments, something like that. And he had a post about Nipsey. And he's like, look, like I, I come from the streets and this guy comes from the streets and I completely turned my life around. And, you know, it's a it's a tragic loss. And and the reason why I brought, I brought up Nipsey is because I wanted to address, you know, some of those comments. People were like, oh, you know, I thought you were so smart. You know, I listened to your podcast and, but this is not cool. It's like, like I'm looking at it on all levels, you know, you have to just, yeah. you have to look past uh, some of the negative, especially when we're talking about, you know, like the, the neighborhood he was from, the, the gang over there is rolling sixties. And that's one of the, the biggest crip gangs in Los Angeles and one of the most yeah. notorious. So it's like, you know, are, are we just going to send in a platoon of Marines and, you know, start doing airstrikes or is that how we're going to get the rolling sixties out or, yeah. or are you going to connect with the rolling sixties and, from the ground up, you're going to fix it. And and that's yeah. the same concept you and guys like you are, are working with overseas and, and it's, it's worked to, you know, some, some success. You know? No, absolutely. Well, man, I, you know, I'm glad you addressed it, man. And, and, and I got your full support on that, man, you know, for, you know, uh, you know, in favor of you uh, against those comments that you received, man, you, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. We live in a crazy time. We live in a divided time. And what's so sad about the time we live in is, you know, people are not willing to step out of their lane and into another lane and be open to hear what what someone else has to say. Right. Or be open to, 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 to listen. You know what I mean? It, it, it's like it's either you're 
it's either you're on the right side, and I don't mean this, I'm not, no pun intended, I'm not saying this from a political standpoint, it's either you're on the right side and you're going to stay on the right side and you're going to believe what the right side believes and all that, or you're on the left side and you're going to stay on the left side and you're going to believe what the left side is saying and all that. And no one's crossing over and no one's open to hearing what each side has to say. Right. And that's why you could have when you do a, a comment on a post and people flip out of you because it's like they don't know your heart. They're not even willing to hear your heart. It's just like, I'm right. Everything I say is right. Everything I've done is right. And all of my perspectives are right. Right, exactly. So you are absolutely wrong for saying what you said. And there's no truth. There's absolutely no truth in what you said. There's no love in what you said. Everything you said is just absolutely negative. Like, that needs to stop, man. Like, right. straight up, that, need, that, need, that needs to stop. We have to be willing to step outside of the box Step outside of our 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 our, our bubble, and, and at least empathize and be opening to, be open to hear why you had the thought that you had and why you had the comment that you had versus right. just shutting okay. it down. And what's you know my what perspective, saying? right? Because everyone has a different perspective. But you know, just like keep like tying it into like you know military and strategy when. Early on in, in the war in Afghanistan, right, they sent small teams of Green Berets into certain areas yeah. that are today are, are really notorious bad places. Actually, yeah. uh, I'm forgetting the exact name, but uh, there was a, a special forces captain. Uh, he wrote a book. I completely do not remember the name of it. But basically what he was talking about was that they went into this area, a 12-man a, a ODA, and I think they had like a couple of Marines with them, uh, maybe a, a scout sniper team for security and, and, and a little extra muscle, right? Yeah. So, you know, they set up their, they set up in this village and, you know, they're doing this unconventional warfare thing, a, a very small footprint, um, not a lot of guys, but they're connecting with the people. And that, that's their, literally their entire job is to connect with the local population yeah. and deny the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and all these foreign fighters the 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 space to operate because it's the, you know, if, if you have the people with you, you can, it'll work. Right. Yeah. And, um, that mindset of not being able to empathize and not being able to work with the local population. That's, that's where some of the mistakes were made yeah, in Afghanistan uh, early on. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Cause they, they had that, they had this entire area, like, Locked up for the most part. Like, you know, there's still direct action stuff going on. They still had to go out on raids and things like that. But half of the fight was just, you know, it's it's been kind of cliched now after so many years. But, you know, you're talking about the hearts and minds piece of it. Yeah. But that's reality, though. Like, yeah. if we're not going to go in and just bomb the entire country to, to dust, then we it has to happen yeah. through that unconventional method. Exactly. You know? No, I agree 100%. <laughs> like we ain't going back to Japan years. Yeah, like you know, we're not we're dropping places. a nuclear, yeah. yeah, nuclear places. So, so if you're not going to nuke a place, then you have to also understand that that ninety percent of the people that you're ninety percent of the people that you're surrounded around by are not your enemy. Right. It's just probably like ten percent or twenty percent, depending on the country or the region you're in. Right. And it's going to be that eighty to ninety percent. That's going to help you win the battle. Most of the people that I that I fought that that have that helped me do the job that I did in the country I was in was the locals. Right. 
And it was because I was able to, you know, kind of like I shared early with through that common ground, build relationship and, you know, actually showed that I cared about him because that's a whole nother piece to it. Because I did every informant that I work with. And I'm just using that term. You know, I don't mean that in a negative way. I cared about them. I cared about their life. I cared about their well-being. I cared about their country. You know, it was it wasn't like I'm just over here to kick down doors and, and you know, smash people. That's that wasn't where my heart was. My heart was to help people. And I think that that, that the people that the locals that I work with, they were able to recognize that, that this dude cares for me. And when they recognize that, that's when change begins to happen and yeah. perspective begins to change. You know what I mean? And I'm just hoping, man, and in some way we can see that more in this country, man. You know, um, yeah, we, we need it. We need it big time, man. We're focusing on reaching the hearts and minds and and being open to hearing and not just being so combative and so you know. I'm gonna just and I say this proverbially, smash my opponent. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, and any. And this, and I'm saying, I'm using some of these examples because these are all things that you can look at. Uh, it's already the information is out there. It's in the public space. It's not super secret, classified. Like people can can do their research on on this. And um, look, you look at any anything. I mean, you, you look at old World War Two spy books and novels, and or you know what worked in Vietnam and what didn't work, or what works in Afghanistan, what didn't work, and. Yeah. All of the things that were successful when when you're talking about connecting with people and and having to connect with people in order to achieve the mission, all of that is is relating to people, putting yourself in their shoes, yeah. understanding them. And, and yeah. all those, these are all examples of things that have worked. And w- one of the in Afghanistan, uh, once that 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 ODA rotated out. Uh, maybe another ODA rotated in a, another special forces team and then like the next rotation in was like a an army infantry unit or a marine infantry unit and yeah. um, and that once they got in that's when things changed yeah and it isn't because those infantry guys are not capable they're perfectly capable but their job isn't to to do that work with the locals like that's not their job yeah. their job is is direct action yeah. Yeah, front lines. Right, like their job is to go in and kill as many people as they can, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it's not their fault that it didn't work. It's the higher ups' fault, and um, you know, a a full bird colonel or a general, some, whoever's in charge of that area, is not going to listen to a special forces captain. And um, so just just connecting it to like to some of those comments that people had on that post about Nipsey Hussle, it's like if if you're that short sighted it's just not going to, you're not going to succeed. Like you, you, you can nah. succeed in life. You could, you know, no, you're going to succeed, but you're going to succeed within your own sphere right. for the most part. Right. right? If, because if, if you plan on branching out, it's not going to happen. No, no. Cause you can't like that person you said that's, and, and this is no, I'm not hitting on anybody from any region. I've been all around the country. So please don't take this the wrong by the way to anybody, but you know, if you're from, and I'm, I'm not even going to use the South as an example, because I can see people. <laughs> but if you if you're from Chicago, you know, and 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 every and everything you do or say is approved or agreed upon by people in Chicago, and that's all you know your entire life, 
when you go to Los Angeles, you're gonna get you're gonna get punched in the face. Yeah, it's not gonna work. Life. Yep. So you know what I mean? And and that's something that I had to learn in the military. Like, like the military changed my perspective so much because I was in the I grew up in the Bronx. And me growing up in the Bronx, especially in my first command, because all I knew was Bronx, that's how I began to act early on in my Navy career, my first command. And that almost destroyed my career. Because here I am, this is the way I'm used to talking to people. This is the way I'm used to people dealing with me. And I'll share a story. It was this HM3, um, which is equivalent of a corporal in the Marine Corps. And when I checked into the command, like, you know, I, I checked into a hospital. So a Navy hospital is different from an infantry unit. Like to me, when I was working at Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, it was like I was working at, you know, Sinai Hospital in New York City. You know what I'm saying? Because there's no real military edict. You wear a military uniform, but there's no real, like nobody's shouting you down. You're not having uniform inspections. And a lot of that doesn't take place. And I remember, you know, checking into the hospital and the, the receptionists were civilians. They were super nice to me. So I'm just having a conversation the way, you know, New York do, you know, cool. Hey, I'm happy to be here, this and that. And then my LPO came up with leading petty officer for the clinic. She came and introduced herself to me and we're having a conversation just normal. She's being respectful to me. I'm being respectful to her. It's easy. And then she introduces me to this HM3 that's going to be in charge of me for the next, which turned out to be the next year. And when she introduced me to the HM3, um, I, you know, I said, you know, she said, I, she said, I'm HM3 so-and-so. And I said, I said, hey, I'm at a lake, you know. And, uh, and she kind of gave me a mean look, but she didn't say anything because the L- LPO was right there. And then, you know, you know, the, the LPO was telling her, hey, you know, show Remy around the clinic and teach him what to do, this and that. And she was like, we'll do. And then the LPO left. And when the LPO left, the HM3 walked up to my face and she said, she said, H.A. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you are H.A. Adelaide don't you dare introduce yourself to me as Adelaide. You are in the military. And she starts flipping. She puts a finger <laughs> in my face, dude. And she's flipping on me, dude. And I'm like, and literally, I turn my nose up like, like, who are you talking to? Right, exactly. You know what I'm saying? And she said, stand in attention. I'm like, no, I ain't standing in attention. And she's oh! And like, as I'm getting ready to get real street on her, the only thing that kept me from going deeper to the dark side, from 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 <laughs> staying within my bubble, right? Staying within my, because you know how it is in New York. Somebody disrespect you, somebody play you, you're gonna do something. Yeah. And that's all I knew. And the only thing that kept me from 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 staying within my bubble, staying within what I've been taught and how I've been taught to live, was my pet, was the was the petty officer Tiana who snuck me into the Navy. Because right before I was getting ready to flip out. I, I, I thought back to her saying, um, to her giving me that opportunity. And if I'd have done the wrong thing, then I would have validated the reason why the government said I couldn't join the military. Right. right. You know what I'm saying? And so I had to learn early on, I need to step outside of my bubble and be willing to bend in a different direction. Not, 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 not against, you know, uh, 
and I don't want to say convictions, but not 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 again, not any anything immoral, but just just be willing to 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 look at things from a different perspective. Because if I'm not willing, if I'm not going to be able, if I'm not going to be willing to step outside of my bubble and look at life from a different perspective, in that case, a military perspective, she was right to a certain extent. Now, the way she went about correcting me, was that right? We could argue whether it was right or wrong. I would say it was wrong, but I was supposed to use rank. I was supposed to introduce myself as H.A. Adeleke. I was supposed to stand at attention as soon as she told me to stand at attention. I was supposed to not talk back or twist my... Because this is the new world that I'm in. And so if I'd have stayed in that old world, I'd have got kicked out of the Navy. Or I'd have, I'd have end up in jail. Or I'd end up doing stuff that I would have, wasn't supposed to do. And so I just say all that to say that, that all of us, we, 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 we're raising these bubbles. And the bubbles are good because it's where we get our core, you know, some our good core values. It's where we learn how to be comfortable. But at some point, we got to be willing to step out of that bubble and learn how to adapt and take on other lessons. Because if not, we're not going to survive. Right. You know, kind of going back to that analogy, Chicago, L.A., if you just if you think you're going to come to L.A. And, and do everything exactly the way you did everything in Chicago, you ain't going to make it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, does that make sense? No, it does. It does. So, and, and, you know, so, you know, I just say that about people, man, like with these comments and all that stuff. Yeah, I get comments, too, man. I've gotten all kinds of crazy comments, you know, from people who, you know, man, like, you know, because, you know, I'm a Christian, you know, and, you know, people like, man, how could you how could you be a Christian and be a Navy SEAL? Like, you can't do that. That's impossible. Like, that's that's hypocrisy. That's this. That's that. And. And yeah, I don't argue with them, you know, because it's just like you know, I'm not going to argue with somebody who's already shown that once somebody starts shouting me down, I already realize I, I, I immediately know that there is no me. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I say. Their, their opinion is already made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. And it's um, and, and that's the thing, like and a lot of the people or majority of the people who listen to my show are patriotic Americans or people who served in some form or fashion in foreign service and um and and the whole you know the the last episode i did um well actually by the time this goes up this wouldn't be the last episode but yeah (laughs) um, i had to think about that but um i recorded with this guy and he was the uh the director of overseas operations for the cia that's where he finished at yeah so his entire 30 plus year career was spent overseas yeah, wow. living with other people, you know, talking their language, eating their food, learning their customs, you know, and and in a lot of cases, you have to work in in places that are dangerous, and you're and but the ability to connect with people is what keeps you alive, and I think uh, that's a lesson that people should should take home, and and there's so many examples of it. Your story is one of them, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I appreciate that, absolutely. Yes, sir. So, so after you retired from the Navy, uh, what was that like for you? And then, can we talk about some of the things you've been doing since then? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I won't. I can't. I can't use the term retired because I didn't do twenty I'm, years. I'm I sorry. Just, yeah, that's that's yeah, me, yeah. Yeah. So I I just I separated. Um, and the re- reason why I got out. Um, you know, I was kind of because people ask me that question all the time, man. You had to seal and went to that. You why'd you get out? Um. You know, I had two boys, man, um, at that time. You know, my oldest was, was two and my youngest was one. And, um, 
I just needed to be home. You know, being a SEAL, you're just gone so much between training and, and operating. And, uh, and so, yeah, I got out and uh, crazy story. I got out to be home. And three months later, you know, of, you know, fidgeting around, you know, you know, trying to figure out my way, figure out what I'm going to do in life. You know, I just kind of I, I reverted back to what I knew. And so I applied to, to GRS. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that term. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I was going through the application process. I had my first interview that went good and and, 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 and I turned and everything was already submitted. And then and me and the recruiter. The recruiter just stopped communicating with me, like after like, you know, communicating for like two weeks or something like that, two, three weeks. And then all of a sudden he just stopped communicating with me. And so, you know, I, I suspected that I didn't make the cut. You know, I suspected that maybe in some way, you know, I didn't qualify. And, and so I just, you know, continued, continued mission. And I was in grad school at the time, getting my master's in, in organizational strategy. Um, I went to the University of Charleston, West Virginia. Great school, by the way. I want to give them a shout out. Um and uh, I was sitting at my, paper, my, my computer writing papers for school, and I get a phone call uh, from this woman. Um, uh, she, I won't mention her name, but she's worked with Michael Bay since The Rock in 96, her and her husband. And, uh, and she was like, hey, Michael Bay's looking for, for an African-American CEO uh, to, to, to uh, do a little role in, in, a, in a movie. The name of the movie is Transformers. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, Michael Bay, I mean, that's the dude that inspired me to be a SEAL. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll do that. You know what I mean? Um, and so she said, hey, send me some pictures. And I didn't have headshots because I, I wasn't in Hollywood. I wasn't thinking about being in Hollywood. So, you know, I just sent her random military pictures because she was like, just send me pictures of you in uniform and, you know, down range and stuff. So I sent her a few and, and she called me back like two hours later. She's like, hey, Michael Bay likes your look. He wants you on set tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> And so I was like, cool. So I, you know, I, you know, I went to set and this is all in, in, in SoCal, LA area. And, uh, it was cool, man. It was, it was crazy. Cause I remember this, the set was in the, in this, in the desert, like in the middle of nowhere. It was like this flat desert. It was crazy. And, and I got there early cause I, you know, I show up to something new like that. You want to make sure you're not late. So I got there early when I got there, it was like, it's like one truck. And uh, the truck had some of the Transformer cars in it, like the Bumblebee car was in there. And I was like, man, this is cool. But there was nobody. And then like an hour later, the entire set was jam packed with mm. like lighting people, props people, costume department, trailers, bathrooms, catering. Like it was just like crazy. And, you know, we shouldn't. And, and, and I went and I put on my costume and then I and then I, I picked out sunglasses and then Michael Bay came up to me and, you know, and he's like, you know, having me try on different sunglasses. I was like, man, this is, this is so crazy right now. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, man, I shot that. I shot that day and it was just supposed to be one day. And uh, and, you know, like a, a, a day, a few days later, well, about two weeks later, um, the lady calls me back. And she's like, hey, Michael Bay likes you looking like so where you take direction. Uh, can you come back for uh, for two more weeks? Uh, and I said, a week in a week in Arizona and a week in Michigan. And I was like, sure. So I, came, I went back. Actually, it was three more weeks. So, so I did a week in Arizona and then I had some work I had to do in Israel. Um, so I flew out to Israel. Uh, did some work out there for something else outside of the film stuff, and then I, I flew back from Israel. Uh, I went to uh, uh, we were in Michigan and filmed in Michigan for two weeks. And then after those two weeks, um, one of the production assistants approached me and was like, "Hey, Michael Bay wants to keep you on uh, as cast. Would you like to stay on until we wrap filming?" And I was like, "Sure." So I stayed on film until we wrapped in July, and that's kind of how I got into the film and TV industry. Um, and once you do a movie like that, 
it just opens up doors. Like it's just one of those things where you don't really have to, to really, you know, audition. And I mean, you still got to do that, but you don't have to really chase it, you know, doors open. So it was through that, that I, that I was able to get an army commercial. And then I got a, a national AT&T commercial. And then I signed an endorsement deal with jockey underwear <laughs> and all my boys in the teams, they made fun of me. <laughs> it's a saying in the team seals, we don't wear underwears because we, because we don't. But I was like, Hey, when jockey came up to me, they, they threw a check at me. I was like, yeah, you know, I walked out of my drawers. <laughs> so yeah, man, I signed an endorsement deal with them and did a commercial with them in my underwear. You can go watch it, watch it on YouTube. Uh, and everywhere where, where commercials like that play. And then, you know, I did a, a print campaign with them. And then, you know, and then I, you know, that led to, to my book deal, man. I got my book deal with, with, with Harper Collins and um, which is one of the, one of the big three or big three publishers in, in, in the world. And, uh, and, and that's where, you know, my shift began to, sh- my, my, my mindset began to shift from actor to writer. Cause you got to remember, you know, Everything that I've done since I've been out wasn't something that I was, well, I won't say everything, but the majority of what I've done since I've been out hasn't been something that I pursued. Um, Speaking has been probably the only thing that I've really um, pursued uh, because, you know, I I like to inspire people and motivate people and speak truth. Um, But um, but acting I didn't pursue and writing I didn't pursue. Um, but now those are, those are my primary, <laughs> that's the primary sources of, uh, of revenue now. Um, so, I, so I got into, I, I, when I signed my deal with, with Harper Collins, originally my mom was signed on as a writer. Um, but, um, after two months of, 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 of her writing, I read three chapters that she wrote and I was just like, this is not me. It's not my voice. It's not my story. It's her story. And I had done a lot of writing in my life because as an Intel human guy, um, I had to write reports. You know, I had to write tons of reports, especially downrange. Every time I had a meeting with an informant or every time I went somewhere, you know, I, I had to write these long, detailed reports. You know, what was the informant wearing? Like, what was his mood? Like, what did he say? Where did he say this guy? Like, long, detailed reports. And those reports would be sent up to, to generals and different agencies and they would read it. So grammatically, everything had to be spot on. Um, so, so after, my, after I kind of, you know, told my mom I was going to take the reins, that's when I, you know, I kind of put all of those lessons I learned as, as a detailed writer into writing my book. And, uh, I wrote my book and, 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 and there's more to that story, but that's what led me into writing films. So I wrote my first film, um, after I finished my book called the chameleon and, uh, and that book now is, is that's described that screenplay has been, um, read by some major people in the industry and, and it's gotten nothing but like straight A's as far as like a, a screenplay, especially a first screenplay. And so now, you know, I, I just finished my last rewrite last night and we're getting ready to take it to market. So I'm signed with, with uh, zero gravity, zero gravity. They, uh, they produce Ozark on Netflix. They produced the accountant. Nice. With ben Affleck. They produced, um, it's a new, uh, Netflix show that they're producing with LeBron James and Octavia Spencer about Madam CJ Walker, uh, to, uh, proud Mary. They produce a bunch of big stuff. So they, they signed me as a writer. Um, so I wrote my first film, um, and we're getting ready to take that to market. Um, we've already had like a major production company offer to co-finance the film, which is huge because the, 
number one way a film gets made is through financing and to have uh, a company already want to put up a large, when I want to say large, I mean millions and millions of dollars um, for the film to go into production. That's, that's a huge step. Um, so, and, and, and it's a great sign. So I got that going. I'm writing my second film now, which I can't go into great detail about it, but it's, it's about the first group of uh, one of the first group of Afri- African-Americans to serve as special operations. It's a fascinating story. It's wow. a story that hasn't been told um, and that should be told. And I came across the story and I was just like, this is my next movie. Um, so I'm about a, a third of the way through the movie. And it is, it is, it is fascinating. I mean, just the stuff that these guys went through um, um, and, 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 the, and, and the heroic feats that they've accomplished and how no one knows about it. You know, mm-hmm. these guys were legit special forces guys. Um, African-Americans getting after it, you know, um, kicking out doors and taking names and doing stuff. And, and, and because, um, because of segregation of the military, you know, they, they were, they were, you know, they were pretty much all African-American, you know, unit. So, um, so I'm writing that film now. I'm hoping to have it done before my book releases. And then we're looking to take that to market. Um, and then I, and then I'm probably going to write the screenplay for my film, a screenplay for my book, because, a lot of people actually before I finished writing my book, I was approached by major studios and, and major major people who I've I mentioned their names. I can't mention their names on this podcast, but if I mention their names, a lot of people would know who they are. Um, but uh, or the or the projects that they've created. Um, but before I finished writing the book, people were approaching me and asking me for the rights to the book to turn the book into a film. So that's something that we know is going to happen. Um, um, and so I'm, I'm trying to stay ahead. So I'm, after I finish this project I'm writing now, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start writing, um, uh, my book, I'm gonna adapt the book into a screenplay. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Yeah, so, yeah, that's good stuff. Man. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So that's pretty much my, my day to day operations, uh, right now. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of touched on it earlier, but my nonprofit work, man, that that's what really uh, drives me. It's what fuels me. Um, um, everything that I do, um, it helps, uh, it helps me financially so that I could do this without worrying about money. Um, so that I could do my, you know, work with my, with my kids. And when I say kids, I don't mean my personal kids. I mean my, my, my kids in, in, in uh, city of hope, um, city hope, excuse me. And, uh, you know, just pour into them and try to, you know, change the trajectory of their life. Because one thing I learned is sometimes it just takes one person one person like me, like my recruiter, it just took her one act. She wasn't even my life for, for she was in my life for more than two weeks. It just took one act to change the trajectory of my life. So, yep. you know, blessed with the opportunity to, be to spend more than two weeks with my kids. You know, I got three special ones uh, that are, you know, under my thumb right now <laughs> um, that, you know, I'm hoping that I want to see them be somebody because they have so much potential. And, and none of all three of them, their dads are not in their lives. Um, dads haven't been in their lives and their dads are not dead. Their dads are, are very well alive. They're just not in their lives. And so I'm, I'm like dads to these kids, man. And so right. that's 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 the big thing I do now is to try and, you know, be that instrument of change um, and, and, you know, watch these kids grow to be men. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. such important work. And, um, you know, looking at it. Like there's so many perspectives it can be looked at from, and I've heard uh, from the perspective of someone who is trying to affect change. Like even if, even if you look at it from so many different levels, like we want to change this area, we want to change these kids, 
Yeah. We want to break this cycle and, and, and take the negatives out of the culture. Yeah. But then if you look at it, and that's one perspective, but then look at it from another perspective, look at it from the national perspective, how much talent are we losing in, in some of these inner cities? You know, there's so yeah, many, yeah. you know, the the next uh, analyst at the, the NSA or, the, you know, just anything. I agree. There's so much talent in some of these I agree, areas. man. And um, I, it gets lost in the sauce, man. And it's I think it's time that we really reach in and, and try to uh, change the culture. No, I agree 100 percent, man. And and that's that's actually it's funny you bring that up because that's one of the things I said to my kids on on Tuesday. Like, you guys have so much potential. Like, you don't even know it right now. Um, you know, and so there there are these there are so many kids in the inner city. Yeah, they're just so talented. You know, I mean, yeah. naturally talented and gifted. You know, and, and if they applied themselves. To, yeah, it changes to, everything. To positive things, it changes yeah. everything because they, they do apply themselves, but they apply themselves. I mean, yeah, I'm just speaking for some of the kids I work with. You know, they apply themselves to the wrong things. Yep. You know, but if they apply themselves to the right things, and it's crazy because, you know, I was with my kids, the kids the other day, and you know, I just felt like this old man. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, as a kid, you know, the last thing I wanted to hear about is do good in school, kid. You yeah, know what exactly. I mean? And I'm just like, yo, guys, listen, I said, you guys are in middle school, getting ready to go to middle school. This is a turning point in your life. <laughs> like, like, let's get after it. Let's focus on these grades, this math, this sign. Let's get this down. Like, and I'm all about, hey, whatever you do, do with excellence. That's another thing I try to preach to these kids. Whatever you do, do with excellence. Don't just meet the standard. Like, I'm, I hate people who just meet the standard, who just check the box. Like, yeah. no, anytime you do anything, you are to blow past the standard. You are to do it. You have to, you have to do it with excellence. And so I'm preaching this to the kids the other day. And I like, I, like midstream, I'm like, man, I know that these kids are like, dude, you're talking to me about school. Like, I, last thing I'm thinking about school, because it's hard, I think, for kids to put two and two together to see, you know, okay, if I do good in school, this is going to lead to me, you know, doing good in high school. If I do good in high school, this is going to lead to me getting into college. If I do good in college, this is going to lead to me getting a good job. If I do good in jobs, this is going to lead to me making money. If I make good money, this is going to lead to me being able to provide for my family. And so it's hard for, for, for young people to see how where you are now uh, and what you do now could affect your future. You yeah. know, so I just felt like this old freaking nerd, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> But that, that's how it is, though. And it's like yeah. I remember as a kid, you know, they'll, they'll tell you things like, uh, you know, you can you can be whatever you want. You know, you can be the president of the United States someday. And it's like, it's, I mean, and some kids get it early on and they do the right thing and they, you know, they do what they're supposed to do. But some people, it's just it just doesn't click right away. And yeah. I remember like hearing these things and it's like. Okay, yeah, whatever, sure. You know, I want to get back to my conversation. You know, whatever it is I'm doing. <laughs> but then yeah. you hit a point in life where you like, you know, I really could do anything that I want to. Yeah, and, yeah. And, but it sounds the same as what you heard as a kid and you just brushed it off. Absolutely. But it's understanding that that is the truth and what that means makes all the difference, you know? No, absolutely. We are our only limits. That's yeah. what I said. Like, that's one of my sayings. Like, I say to myself, and that's one of the things I try to like preach to my kids, like, you know, and you know, my, my biological kids as well, is like you are your only limit. You know what I mean? Like, especially like I've been to other parts of the world. Like I, I, I went back to Nigeria last year 
um, to finish write, writing my book because I wanted to make sure that that the spirit of, of, of the ending of my book was was where it needed to be. And, and I needed to be in Nigeria. I needed to experience the culture. I needed to be around my people again. And, you know, when you go to Nigeria, you just see how, wow, man, it's just so hard to make it, man, unless you like yeah. born into like into extreme wealth. Cause the, cause the, cause you know, the, the, the just the, the disparity between the rich and the poor is just so large. And it's just a, it's just a massive, massive wealth gap. And, and, and if you're, if you're poor, like it's hard for you to rise out of that, man. Yeah. It's like so hard because even, you know, it's just, it's almost like a, and it's not a caste system, but it's almost like you're stuck in this caste system because the way the government structure is, you know what I mean? And, and when I come back to the States and I see like all the opportunities. Yeah. It's endless. It's the, endless. the opportunities are endless, man. Like endless, like, and that's why, you know, immigrants, like especially African, especially Nigerian immigrants, like Nigerian immigrants, they come over here and they crush it. Yeah. Because they've come from a world where no matter how hard they worked, they were still going to be in the same place. Right. Not because it's their fault, but because of the way the government is structured. And then they come over here and they see how, wait, what I put out is what I get back. Right, and they kill it. Yeah, they kill it. Like, 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 yo, like, real talk. I'm gonna be real. You know what I'm saying? Um, My dad, he's my dad. Um, He made some decisions that I didn't find out about until I was in my 20s. Um, You know, like decades after he died. And what I what I mean by that is, my dad had kids. He 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 cheated on my mom, and he had kids. And me and my mom, nobody knew. For decades, like I, I have a, I have a sister that grew up in Queens. Wow, you know what I'm saying? She's two years younger than me. Now, my dad, he was born in Nigeria. His, my grandfather, my father's father, he had seven, eight wives. Mm. Wives, like not like concubine, not like no eight wives that lived with him. Wow, because that's the culture. Right, right. Especially right. when my grandfather, especially at that time, even to this day, right. In, in certain parts of Nigeria. So, so my dad was my first born, was the first born son to my, to my grandfather. Right. And so, and then my grandfather died when my dad was eight, but still he was raised in his culture where it's okay to have multiple women. It's okay to have, you know, but even though he was raised in that culture, he was educated in the West because he would, he, he got a full ride scholarship to study engineering in, in London. And then after he studied, and then he, he got his master's in engineering, he got his master's in architecture. He was one of the first black men on the board of the World Trade Center in New York. He's one of the, he was one of the first black men on the, on, on, on the towning, uh, the, uh, the planning council in Great Britain. So he had his, he had his, his, his um, European culture, which said, you know, get married. But then he also, his European culture was, his Western culture, excuse me, was in conflict with his, with his Nigerian tribal culture. And so that's why, you know, I can't really be mad at him. Like there were, there were times after I found out, like I was mad at him, like, dude, how could you do that to my mom? But, you know, being a man now, like I understand that, that, you know, he was at war within himself. And so, but my, anyway, I say all that to say, and I'm sorry for giving a long, long about story, but my dad had a lot of kids 
and literally I, I, I've met siblings. I meet new siblings that are my my actual blood half blood. You know, I've done blood tests <laughs> where they are my confirmed siblings who, wow. you know, who who grew up in Africa. You know what I'm saying? And they immigrated to the United States. I got a sister, half sister that's an illegal immigrant in New Jersey right now. Okay. Uh, I ain't going to say her name because her name is different than me and she married and all that. But, you know, my half brother, that dude came over here. My half sister was the most recent one to come over here. I still have another half sister who lives in Ghana now, who's a year younger than me. My half brother, he immigrated over here, I want to say like 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 eight, nine years ago. And when he immigrated over here, he was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And so that dude, he became a cab driver. <laughs> he's a cab driver in Chicago. He became a cab driver in Chicago, grinding, right? Because he's like, hey, I'm in the United States. I'm going to be a doctor. Like literally, he's about to start med school. But you know how long it took for him to be able to get to med school? It took him years and years and years of, you know, applying for his citizenship, working that cab, getting robbed. That dude showed me, he showed me a video because in the cabs they had, in Chicago, they had the cameras and the dude put a gun to his head, get ready to blow his brains out over a few dollars. You know what I'm saying? Getting robbed, but still showing up to the job, grinding every day, working through the night, doing all of that, going to school in the daytime, getting his bachelor's degree, still driving cabs. Um, and then and he got accepted into this this pre-med program um, that was like super far away from his house. So he would he would drive all the way to this this area, like six hours, go to school, drive back, be with his wife and his kid. And dude's about to go to med school. But you, but the reason why he's like that is because he, he comes from a place he grew up in Nigeria. Right. You know what I'm saying? So he comes from this place where it don't matter how hard if he did all of the stuff that he did in America over there. He would be in the negative. Yeah, it just wouldn't you know what I'm work. Saying? Yep. It wouldn't work. But but him being here, he came over here, he saw all these opportunities. He's like, yo, <laughs> sky's the limit. Yeah. And, you know what I'm saying? And people take it for granted. And and that's it. You know, I'm glad you spoke about that. Some of my good friends, um, one of my friends, he's he's from the Bronx, but his family is from Ghana. And, yeah. uh, and his parents immigrated here. So he's like first generation American. And um but his parents, they, they were just hustlers, you know, and they yeah. they barely spoke English. But you know, they yeah. and, and and that's the same story. And you know, some of my other friends, they they immigrated from Albania, and it's the same thing with with their parents. You know, they they grew up in the Bronx, and uh, you know, their parents worked really hard, and and now yeah. you know they own property, and they're all yeah. doing all right. And it's just like you see that so much, especially in New York, because you know it's one of the most diverse cities in the world. Yeah, and, um, exactly. Uh, you, you just see so many examples of that. Yeah. Uh, and even, you know, one of my friends, uh, his, he was born here, but his parents were born in Albania. And um, he's a, he's now a teacher. You know, he got his master's degree. He's a teacher now. And um, in, in one of his courses for his master's, the I forget, the teacher was from, uh, I don't remember where he was from, but he wasn't from the U.S., yeah. Very smart guy. Uh, he spent, you know, over 20 years in the U.S. or whatever. And he he told them in a lot of cases, the immigrant students outperform American students. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's not because they have some special... I mean, some people are gifted. <laughs> they just work harder, you know. And it's, yeah, they work harder. Yeah. Because, and I think a lot of it is a parenting too, right? Like, and, that, and that's one thing, you know, I, you know, I talk about, you know, in my book, you know, like my mom, like, she... She was a teacher in the South Bronx. 
So she knew how she knew how bad the public education system was yeah. firsthand. You know what I mean? And so, like on the weekends, she would make my brother and I read the New York Times and write reports. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, she was like, "You guys are not going to be a statistic. You guys are going to graduate." I, like the statistics are horrible. Like when I was doing research like a year ago for my book, I think it was like it's a ridiculous number. It's like only. And like you don't quote me on this, but it's something like only 20 percent of people from the Bronx go to college. Yeah. Like it was a ridiculous statistic, something like that. Like, don't quote me on it firmly. But my mom was like, you guys are not going to be that part of that statistic. And so so she would do the work that the schools weren't doing. And it's on a lot of the parents to say, you know what, I know the school system is not good and I know, but I have to keep my kid in the school because our house is right down the street and I can't afford to drive them across town, but I'm going to give them extra writing assignments. I'm going to do their homework with them. I'm going to make sure their math and science and all these things are on par. I'm going to do the research. If I have forgotten how to do calculus or trigonometry, I'm going to do the research myself to get up to speed. So when I check my kid's assignment, I can make sure I can I can make sure that it's on par and it's meeting the standard or passing the standard. And and that's what it is with immigrant parents. And I'm speaking for because I know, you know growing up as a Nigerian American, every time a Nigerian in the Bronx or in school or whoever, every time they heard my last name, Adeleke, they know you Yoruba. You are Yoruba because Yoruba is a tribe. Right. So they recognize a name as a Yoruba Nigerian tribe. And so because of that, I, I, I built all of these relationships with a lot of African, specifically Nigerian immigrants, well, all people who, who parents were immigrant, immigrated over and then they had kids. Right. All of them across the board, their parents were involved in their education. Yeah. And these were kids who went to the same public schools I went to, but their parents was like, listen, I'm not having it. If you don't come home with an A, I'm going to tear you up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will not come home with the A. You will not come with the A. I'm dropping you off. <laughs> That's the way it is. You know what I'm saying? And so my mom, knowing how my dad was when he died, my mom was just like, yo, it's an A or nothing less. You know? And so a lot of it falls on the parents. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's, you know, it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. I, you know, I've seen some pretty bad situations um, just growing up or, you know, kids you go to school with and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's funny as you're talking, like I just keep thinking about my friend who's, who's from Ghana and, um, you know, and, and some of the jokes we make about immigrant parents and, you know, yeah. and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. But it pays off in the long run, right? It does. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, it's not pleasant because your friends are making fun of you. You know what I mean? Like, you know, especially when you, you can't come outside to play and yeah, make exactly. fun of you and all that other stuff. But, but now fast forward 20 years later, who's laughing? Exactly. Right. And he, you know, he's from the South Bronx, immigrant <sighs> parents, he has a master's degree. He's a teacher yeah. and, um, and he's doing all right. You know, he's raising his, his kid and, you know, yeah. Um, and, and that's and, how it is, yeah. And I think another thing too with immigrant parents, and I found, I find, I find looking back to my dad, you know, immigrant parents, and obviously we're not speaking generally, like every immigrant parent, but a lot of immigrant parents, 
they focus, they focus like they, they, they're forward leaning. What I mean by that is they're looking, they're looking generations. They, they, they think generational, right? So they don't think like, oh, my kid needs to get, like, I need to make sure my kid is successful. They think like, I want to make sure my grandkid is, has what they need. Like, so the reason why they want you to be right and you to be successful and you to be this is because they're thinking about their legacy, right? So they're thinking about that grandchild. They're thinking about that great, great grandchild. And a lot of immigrant parents look like they, 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 they're thinking way into the future where I think a lot of, you know, more American parents, and I could be wrong on this, they just think about kind of the here and now, like my child right here, you know, let me make sure that, you know, you get school, clothes, this and that, but, but not past that, you know, and I could be wrong, but so don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now there's going to be a bunch of people like, Hey, wait a minute. That's not, you know, <laughs> my parents were you, like that. Well, you can cut it out there. Cut it out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, yeah, that that that's that's cool, man. And you know, I, I I'm glad I got to talk to you. Knowing a little bit of your story before we really spoke, I knew that there were things we could probably connect on that, you know, most of the guests I have on I can't connect with on certain levels. Yeah. yeah. Um but you know, it was really great talking to you, man. And and Same here. and um, you know, like I said, I'm glad I got to go to talk to you. But so if people want to keep up with you on social media, uh, they want to pay attention and, and follow you and, and be on the lookout for some of your film stuff. Where's the best place they can do that at? Yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, but before I tell you guys, first off, I just want to, before I forget, I want to tell you, man, if that nonprofit you mentioned ever needs help or anything in the South Bronx, Bronx, like, hey, we need a special forces former guy to come out here to do a talk or to just do a mentorship session with some kids, like, hit me up. Um, great, great. I'm okay, in, I will. I will. You know, I'm in New York this week, um, and I'm saying that this week, like this podcast dropped this week, <laughs> but I'm in New York this week. So, you know, if if something is thrown together, you know, let me know, and and I'll make it happen to come inspire some kids and and you know show them, you know, allow them to look in the mirror, see see me in themselves, and see their potential that they could be me or greater than me. You know, um, but yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, it's all the same. Remy, R-E-M-I, Adeleke, A-D-E-L-E-K-E. Um, again, that's Remy Adeleke on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. And then uh, my book is everywhere now. You can go to Barnes & Nobles, uh, BAM, Amazon, wherever books are sold, you can find Transformed. That's the title of my book. The subtitle is a, a Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx, defying all odds. Go pick it up. You won't regret it. You will learn some. You will learn some cool things, uh, not just not about me, but about yourself. You, I'm, I guarantee you there will be parts of chapters in the book where you will see yourself in the stories. But you'll also see that despite the odds that you're facing, you have the ability to overcome them.